Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is episode 16, Thomas Cabanis, Striving for Harmony, Act 2, recorded November 1st, 2018, in New York City. Screaming about irrevocability Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches And fight our own way free Cause the rules don't lie but they don't apply To people like you and me Let's start it up now 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 Now they say it's all decided All divided, all laid out and the pushcart man with a three-part plan Can't understand what you're shouting about But when the past they plow The lives aloud are the only roads you can see Just remember the walls were built to fall For old people like you and me Let's start it up now 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 Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Bonney is a proud partner of Teaching Artists Guild. Teaching Artists Guild. You know, we just had Gene Johnstone, the executive director, on. Oh, yeah. That was a great episode. Thanks, Ben. You're welcome. Could you tell me a little bit more about Teaching Artists Guild? I can. Teaching Artists Guild is a national network of teaching artists and arts education leaders. They've been around since 2013, and Teaching Artists Guild, or TAG, has provided resources and communication about the growing field through their website, databases, and quarterly magazine. They also feature a pay rate calculator and have recently launched an interactive map of the field. Oh, and they also offer dental and vision discounts across the whole U.S. of A. That's amazing. You can visit them at teachingartistsguild.org to learn more about all this fabulous stuff. Tag where the resources are abundant. So earlier this year, I was invited to an event at the Ford Foundation, and it was focused on 400 years of inequality. There is an organization or a coalition of organizations called 400 Years of Inequality. And they are organizations, um, individuals dedicated to dismantling structural inequality and building strong, healthy communities. Um, it was it was really fascinating um, to hear what kind of research they've been doing um, and the sort of call that they put out to the cultural and university sectors. So I thought I'd read just a portion of their executive summary. Uh, Quote, finding our stories. In 2019, we will observe the 400th anniversary of the first landing of Africans in Jamestown, uh, Jamestown, Virginia, to be sold into bondage. Such an historic moment raises the question of observance. 
a surprising upwelling of reflection may be pointing the way. Georgetown University kicked this off by confronting its history of selling slaves to pay the bills. Other universities have followed, including Harvard, Columbia, Yale, and Princeton, as the new museum on lynching was opening in its city, the Montgomery Advisor examined its coverage of lynchings and issued an apology. The New York Times examined its coverage of women in the obituary section and found a massive inequality. This is being addressed through more balanced coverage now, as well as the creation and publication of obituaries that were made Uh, that were missed, including those like Ida B. Wells, who led the fight against lynching, and Ruth Wakefield, who invented the Toll House cookie. National Geographic asked a scholar to examine the approach to race in its writing and identified a racist past, but also an important evolution over the past hundred years. There are many more stories that we can tell. Every group and every place has a story, whether it's the dispossession of Native Americans, denial of rights of working people, or the inclusion, uh, exclusion, excuse me, of Asian Americans. There are many more stories that we can tell. Some of the stories we need to tell and hear are stories of resistance and progress, the stories of strikes, sit-ins, elections, and sanctuary. So the other part of this event um, was um, asking the the representatives of different organizations, different universities in New York City to think about what their observation or observance will be, how they will mark these 400 years. But more importantly, there was this sort of look to the future about how do we think about uh, our place and our what we can be doing in terms of um, addressing inequality and really looking to a more just and equitable uh, future within our society. And for that, I was all about that, as you might imagine. So I, I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to market. This is one way that I can because I have a, a great deal of autonomy in terms of this podcast. Um, I can tell you that I know that the new school is very much involved in this project. There may be other universities um, for foundation will definitely be involved Um potentially art place America. Uh, so if you are working in a arts, um, cultural arts organization or, um, and maybe you work for a different university, um, perhaps you have already heard about this. So I, 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 I'm interested to know what people are planning on doing. Um, and I'm going to keep thinking about it and see what I can do on a personal level and then, um, see in the different realms that I (laughs) float around in and work within to see what's possible. So if you want to learn more about this, uh, you can go to 400yearsofinequality.org. Lastly, I just want to say that this has been an amazing, um, season two. We've had some really fun and interesting intellectual and um, stories and interviews and conversations. We had the live podcast event, which was fantastic. The uh, That was part of the International Teaching Arts Conference, talking to Gene Johnstone from TAG, and, um, and then now Thomas. So in this act, 
Thomas and I continue to chat about his start in teaching and you'll hear about um, or like a little snapshot of the origins of Lincoln Center Institute, which is now called Lincoln Center Education. And we also discuss his artistic endeavors, including an opera that he composed in his early, early in his career about Denmark Vici, um, who was a freed black man uh, who seems to be a lightning rod in South Carolina's history. And I had to do some um, research on. So enjoy this episode, episode 16, act two, Thomas Cabanis, Striving for Harmony. Moving forward. Yeah. Because <laughs> I am curious about, you know, at this point, you've graduated, you're working on these projects. What, where in this, or is there any sort of um, uh, teaching that's happening or, or sharing or mentoring um, that you're doing for others? Because it feels like John... Mal Sherry was was a mentor. He was my mentor. Yeah, Yeah. my teacher in a way. He really, he really taught me. He was a brilliant, brilliant teacher. Um, But yeah, not so much for me at that point. I mean, I wasn't doing teaching on my own. Um, What really happened was that you know, once school was over, the question was like, what did I want to do? You know, did I want to be, you know, a conductor? Because I'd certainly Mm. been doing a lot of assistant conducting, you know, and so did I want to go back to school maybe, or do I want to be a conductor, did I want to be, well, composer was really what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. and um, and so th- the things that were about being a musical director or a conductor, I sort of, I began to just say no to, you know, the next kinds of things that I could have done, um, because I really wanted to write, and at that point, I really wanted to write an opera, I had an idea for writing an opera, and so I just really wanted to go work on that, and so to do that, I took a teaching job. Because I thought, well, at least I can I can make some money. I'll I know how, I think I can you know teach music. So I got a job teaching at an independent school in Brooklyn, um, in Bay Ridge, called um, the Adelphi Academy, hmm. and um, and so I taught there for a year. Um, uh, it was K to twelve, and it was a lot of work. And um, and in the middle of the year, I was like, well, you know, I don't know if this is what I want to devote my life to being a full-time music teacher, it was more than I had bargained for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it got me to New York, which was good. And uh, mostly that was because of love. Cause I just wanted to be with my girlfriend. No one to be near her. So and that was, was she from here. Well, she was going to medical school here oh, at okay. Columbia. Mm. Um, and so we had met at Yale and mm-hmm. so she was, you know, in school. So, um, so anyway, I, you know, I did that for you. And during that year, though, another friend of mine who was my, my friend Mel Marvin, who was the composer I met when I was 12 years old, mm-hmm. was here. And he said, you know, you, if you're really looking for work that is um, um, more part-time, talk to my friends at the Lincoln Center Institute. So I went, I had an interview, and they invited me to come and train as a teaching artist there. And when was that? And that was like fall of 84, well, yeah, spring of 85. 86 would have been right around there. So is that so right after yeah. school, like a year and a half after school. So, so, um, so you mentioned, okay. So you mentioned the Newark Philharmonic, which is at Lincoln center. Yeah. Um, but they're not associated with Lincoln center Institute necessarily. Right. Right. That's correct. Um, but like there's something about that sort of the sphere, campus, the yeah. campus, the that campus keeps yeah. drawing you 
yeah i've spent a lot of time there (laughs) and now you're at juilliard too so you know um i've also worked for the metropolitan opera and ah, for new york city so you know it's like yeah city ballet is the only one i haven't really i've never worked for new york city ballet but you know there you go maybe someday maybe someday trying to get them all you know why not yeah you know just do the rounds right exactly (laughs) um uh I'm like okay, so sorry. So you're so <laughs> so so he's he recommends you to go to LCI. Yeah. The reason why I asked about the time frame was because um you know LCI or Lincoln Center Institute has um, a very specific um history in terms mm-hmm. of teaching artists. Yeah, boy, and, does it. And mm-hmm. um so. I don't know. I don't know the exact timeline. So whatever. Well, you f- 74, 1974 okay. was when the Institute was formed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it had been in operation for about 12 years when I, when I joined okay. the faculty there. And at that point, the teaching arts were a part of a union. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, they were. They had become a part of you. Not the, and that actually was early eighties when that happened. Mm-hmm. So, right. Yeah. So it was before. So you came in mm-hmm. at part time. Did you even know what a teaching artist was? Not really. But you were excited about the fact that it was part-time. It was a gig. It was part-time and it paid okay. A gig. It paid okay. And and the best thing about it was they said, and they seemed to mean it, and people, Mm. my my other artist friends that I met, you know, would Mm. say, would shake their heads and say, this is really true, Mm -hmm. is they didn't care if you went away. Yeah. They were like, if you got a gig and it was an, you know, and I was really interested in composing for the theater and I already had a couple of um, gigs lined up Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for out of town. So I was I was worried like you know what what am I gonna do you know if if I go away am I gonna lose my you know my part time work right. in New York and they were like no 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 it's fine you go and you come back and we'll give you some work when you come back and I just that was like heaven that's great yeah and so just to go take one half step back to when you were working at the the Adelphi Adelphi mm-hmm. um, school you did you took that job because you wanted to write an opera did you end up writing the opera i worked on it that year i did Were you, i okay. did and i and i wrote about half of it while i was yeah so i, I wrote some of it okay. I, I i got started yeah and then i finished it after that yeah okay yeah. so okay this is so exciting i, I love everything that's happening <laughs> <laughs> um so but now yeah, i really took it as a convenience gig. yeah I'm so that was honestly, the first part it's just and true. i get that i completely yeah. get that like, just, like very like theoretically that all makes complete sense and i think that you know even now there's still some people who when they they're taking a teaching gig because it's something that they can be making money while they're pursuing their art exactly totally makes sense when you started doing this work though what was there any sort of um light bulbs that were going off for you totally well the one of the first things that i did was i was invited to be part of a team um for the summer session for you know summer institute mm. that they ran mm-hmm. for teachers and it meant that i was working with um you know an an actress and a dancer and a visual artist and myself and the four of us had to plan our time together right. and it was 3 weeks and it was intensive it was every day from like you know mm-hmm. whatever 8:30 or 9 in the morning till 4 in the afternoon and you were going the whole time you were either seeing a performance or in a workshop or listening to Maxine Green give mm-hmm. a lecture you know all day long mm-hmm. and um it was intense and um and I just learned so much you know from my my collaborators and from the teachers that I was working with so 
yeah, that was another moment of just real awakening for me. I was like, oh my gosh, there's all, there's this whole world of thinking about how to teach in a very interesting and innovative and, and, and thoughtful way that the ways in which you can plan educational interactions and ways in which you can question your own orientation to life that I just was amazed by. And so, I mean, I mean, yeah, it was, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about Maxine Green? Sure. So she, she started LCI, is that correct? Well, she didn't start it. She was the philosopher in Mm. residence, Ah. right? And so the people who really started it, interesting, were people that included Jane Reamer Mm -hmm. and then um, after her, June Dunbar, but all the time, Mark Schubart who had been, you know, William Schumann's kind of right-hand person at Juilliard. And then he was interested in um, audience development and working with young people. Mm -hmm. And so Lincoln Center really hired him to think about how um, education at Lincoln Center at large could work. And he wrote a very, uh, what became a kind of a formative paper um, about, um, it was, I think it was called the squiggle (laughs) and, um, it it, it was about arts education Mm -hmm. and about, um, how artists and, um, works of art could, um, interact on the Lincoln Center campus. And so that turned into the Institute. Yeah. And first Jane Reamer had really helped to kind of shepherd all of the work that was going on. Um, um, but then she left and, and June Dunbar took over and that was 74 was, as I understand it, was the, when they really started, started it. And, but right from the beginning, right from the beginning, they knew they wanted to have, um, an educational partner, someone from the, you know, higher education world. Mm-hmm. And Maxine was it. She'd been writing about aesthetic education. She was interested in you know, encounters with works of art. Um, Mark adored her. Mm-hmm. And so right from the beginning, she was part of that team. It was interesting that they decided not to go with a practitioner. In other words, they didn't mm-hmm. pick a teacher to be that educational yeah. partner, but a philosopher mm-hmm. and somebody from higher ed. But it, it, you know, also spoke to some of their kind of their ambitions yeah. and, you know, aspirations for the place. I mean... I haven't studied aesthetic as education. I have a, I have a some like a, a a sense of it, and I understand it. And looking at works of art and um, and that kind of thing, and my as a practitioner, that kind of approach is not necessarily my forte. Like it's, it mm-hmm. doesn't it doesn't yeah. speak to me as strongly. Yeah. Um, but I I I appreciate it very very much, and I think that. Um, as somebody who uh, very early in her career, me, <laughs> had access to working uh, or being in rooms with Jane Reamer, uh, who is um, has been, you know, obviously very prolific in this field mm-hmm. and has had a great deal of um, uh, influence on, on where this field has gone and obviously how it started. Yeah. Um, and um, I and and what's the right word for her just all I can see is like scrappy (laughs) scrappy and instigator and and sort of probing in ways that are like ouch you know (laughs) and um uh 
you know, I, I, again, was meeting her, you know, towards the, towards the end of her career. Yeah. I mean, she's, she's still alive. Sorry. Yeah. But I'm just saying like, yeah. you know, at a place where she has, she had decades of, yeah. of this work behind her and, um, having no idea who she was right. <laughs> really, or that kind of level of history. I just thought, wow, this woman is pushy. Yeah. And yeah. wow. Like she would say things and she would like, you know, again, I, I was just a part-time associate at the Metropolitan Opera Guild as part of uh, ESP, yep. uh, which is a was was a yeah, component Empire of uh, mm-hmm, sure. Empire State Partnerships, part of NISCA. And I just remember thinking like, man, this woman is so smart. I have no idea what she's talking about. But the, her approach to sharing it I remember thinking how is she getting away with this because she would just like talk over other people and she would um you know be talking to I think it was Ted Berger like she would talk mm-hmm. like like you know whispering to her yeah. while other things were going on I'd be like how is she getting away yeah. with this well in part <laughs> I think one of the things one of the reasons why Jane um has been so influential is that she has never shied away from asking the central question, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is, do you know what you're doing? Mm-hmm. Do you know what you want students to know and be able to do mm-hmm. as a result of the work that you're that you're doing? Mm-hmm. She's always said to artists, it's great that you are who you are, that you do what you do, but if you don't have clear learning objectives, you're just playing in the sandbox. Right. And that makes a lot of people uncomfortable Right. Especially people who who sort of say, I'm a teaching artist because of my intuition and my intuition will always guide me mm-hmm. and I'll I'll feel the room and I'll mm-hmm. I'll know what needs to happen and I'll and I'll do a little something. And, you know, the students like me, the teachers like me, right. everybody likes me. What's the problem? Right. And, you know, Jane would always ask the question of like, who cares? Who cares if anybody likes you? I mean, you know, <laughs> end of the day, like, are you actually doing, doing something, something in the classroom yeah. that yeah. is thoughtful and that's mm-hmm. engaging and that also will actually move, result move in, needle, re- yeah, right? will really move the needle. Mm-hmm. So she always asked that question and, and, and yes, she was always um, tough about it, mm-hmm. you know, and she wouldn't give an inch um, in, in certain instances. And so she rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, but she's also... Um, you know, she really has pushed the field forward in thinking about learning objectives and mm-hmm. thinking about these things also being grounded yeah. in um, in good educational practice, right. you mm-hmm. know, and, and also in respecting teachers mm-hmm. for what they do. Mm-hmm. And for, you know, she always insisted on that, that we go to the educators and that we talk to them about what it is they're trying to accomplish and to create a kind of an, an overlapped overlapping set of goals and objectives that everybody could could agree to it's much harder work to do it that way honestly than an artist just coming in and saying hey this is what i'm going to do hope you like it yeah you know i have a program kind of thing Mm -hmm. or i have an idea um but but jane would always you know no you need to start on the other side of the fence not on your side of the fence you need to go start with them what do they need what do they want what's going on with them who are these kids what's the you know um it's just much more intensive kind of partnership work well it's also uh, you have so you know the objectives the outcomes the um that exact language is a part of our pedagogy here or our our lesson plans of you know what you know what do we want to what are we going to do and what based on what we are planning on doing 
will the students be able to know, understand and, right. and do? Yeah. And um, we have to spell that out. We have to be clear about that, especially because often there might be adjustments to the content that we develop. But if we have this as the bedrock, we know how to adjust because we're still trying to hit these particular goals. Um, and that is definitely embedded, uh, yeah. influenced by my my interactions as a, a burgeoning, emerging um, a teaching artist and an arts administrator in this field because of my experience of working right. with her. But if in the 60s or the 70s mm -hmm. you've been hanging out with Merce Cunningham and right. his company uh -huh. as they were touring the, the country, you mm -hmm. know, um, early days of Rockefeller and NEA and all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. I mean, they, they would have chased you out of the room talking about that. They would have said, get out of here. We don't care about that. We're artists. We are going to bring what we bring. And what mm -hmm. we bring is amazing. And it's magical. And I don't want to talk to you about goals and objectives. You're just another one of those, you know, uh, workaday educators who thinks in this old fashioned way. And we're artists. They, that's what they would have said to you. That's and so that's in, a, in part what Jane was coming out mm -hmm. of was a, a world where artists were very full of themselves, mm. right? And not so grounded in the classroom. And she was really trying to make the connection. She was mm. trying to get those two worlds to speak to each other mm -hmm. in ways that were respectful and that were real, you know? Yeah. And so I just adore Jane Reamer. I just think she's yeah. amazing. Oh, and yeah. I've, I've, you know, feel lucky that I got to be her educational partner at, mm. at particular moments and actually do projects with mm -hmm, her. Mm -hmm. And um, and I, I hired her to, you know, to do work as an education director. Mm -hmm. And um, she always gave me great, great advice. Oh, yeah. No, I, I mean, again, as somebody who's sort of um, emerging at the time, uh, uh, you know, those moments of sitting in a room planning with her, uh, you know, amongst a lot, a lot of other people. But I remember thinking like, I, I think of myself, who I, who I am now, <laughs> um, and how I, uh, conduct myself in a room is closer to that person mm -hmm. that I saw in Jane than I was, then I was, I was a sponge. So I wasn't speaking cause I was trying to understand what everything sure. was. And, sure. um, and so from, from, from my perspective as somebody who want, wanted to do good work that's all i've ever wanted to do is just good do good work yeah. whether it's making our working um and teaching or uh doing the the, the work that i do as a, a director education director that um that it has to be grounded um but also this whole I idea of like diplomacy and you know sort of the the other things that we don't necessarily talk about in terms of um uh, collaboration and interpersonal um, interactions within the field. Um, I just remember thinking, wow, this woman has got a set of balls on her and yeah. I yeah. am here for it. Right. And how do I, how do I think about that? Or how do I find my, my version of that, that makes sense for me? And not that I need to be brassy or anything like that, but just how do I make sure that my voice is heard right. in, in any given space? Yeah. Um, and there are quite a few women in my life that I, I look to for those right. um, kinds of models. And she, it was just, it was fascinating. And then on top of it, the fact that she was always so 
um, challenging. Yeah. And um, no, and you, if you were ever at an arts and ed roundtable, <laughs> you know, meeting with a lot of people yeah. in the room, and Jane stood up, you could feel the room go, "Oh, here it comes! Here it comes. <laughs> the hard question is coming." Yeah, it's coming. and I loved yeah. that yeah. because it ma- it pushed you right. Yeah. And so I I don't have a, a re- I have no relationship with Maxine Green. You know, what was she uh-huh. like as a philosopher, as a as a yeah. some, somebody coming from the higher ed world? <laughs> Yeah, Maxine was amazing. Um, I loved Maxine. I loved list first. I just you know encountered her listening to her in the you know Peter J Sharp Theater at Juilliard. Mm-hmm. You know, standing behind a podium with her with her uh, pocketbook hanging from her, from her arm the entire time. Amazing. She would just never put it down, and she but she would stand there and she had these typewritten sheets because she'd written her speech and she always read them in the most monotone voice you could imagine. I mean, these were the the worst delivered set of lectures or speeches you've you've ever heard and yet they were beautiful Mm. they were what was in them was amazing and the writing was amazing too um but it was all this kind of flat line delivery and so if you if you listened carefully and we did um you realized who she was and how amazing she was Mm. um she you know she would bring up in every single one of her lectures um books you hadn't read, paintings you hadn't seen, photographs you didn't know about, articles you should have read that were, you know, in, you know, in the newspaper yesterday, or you mean, it was that kind of thing. You were like, oh my, like, what am I doing with my life? You know, that I don't know all these things that Maxine does, but she did. Um, I think she had the Toni Morrison novels memorized and could, you know, just kind of bring out quotes of them at any particular moment. And you, whoa. Um, so that's how she was, I, how I encountered her to begin with. And then, you know, I really did get to know her personally. And when she had these little salons that she would have, you know, it was all sort of odd. Here's this very socially conscious, um, you know, very left-wing political woman who's writing about education and about the arts and about bringing arts education into places where it, it's, it's not normally, you know, uh, encountered and um, she lives, you know, on Fifth Avenue next to the Guggenheim in this f- fancy schmancy apartment, huh. you know, yeah. and holds these salons where you talk about novels. You know, I mean, there's, you know, the the kind of the highbrow and lowbrow part of, mm-hmm. you know, her writing and her aspirations were uh, that was fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also loved being in that in those, you know, in her apartment on those nights when we would sit around and talk about works of art or you know, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And um, she was very interested and in, in very supportive and, and passionate about the artists she was working with. And um, she, we wrote letters to each other. Um, yeah, I have a bunch of Maxine letters um, that were really about, um, one of the things she talked about to me was um, how inadequate she felt about music. You know, that of all the art forms, you know, she was very good friends with Mark Schubart, who was a musician and a composer and mm-hmm. so on, and, and loved working across all the different, but she said, I, you know, I feel like I, you know, paintings and museums, I, re- I know them and I, and I feel really um, empowered to observe what's going on in a painting and, you know, same thing with a, with a dance or, mm-hmm. and s- especially with theater and with novels. She said, but uh, you know, but I really, I feel like I just don't know enough about music to really be able to, you know, talk about, I said, you know, I mention it all the time. Mm-hmm. I try to give it airtime, but I, but honestly, between you and me, 
Tom. You know, I don't mm-hmm. know enough about music. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, I like I had written a set of piano pieces at the time and recorded them. And so I sent her, you know, a copy of the recording mm-hmm. and she wrote me a beautiful letter about it, you know, afterwards, which was incredibly articulate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, clearly someone who was very observant um, about music. And mm-hmm. so, you know, she was insecure about it, but she but, was, yeah. you know. Um, well, so that, she was that's kind of, <laughs> you know, there, there, there are people who put up are put up on pedestals, right? And they're just people. Yeah. And so I, I love that, you know, of course she was probably more prolific than, than she thought, but that the fact that she could admit that, or to herself that, you know, the deep understanding that she felt like she had with these other art disciplines, but this was the thing that, um, you know, wasn't quite to that level. Yeah. Um, that's hard to admit. Yeah. Um, and impressive that she did. Yeah. I also find, you know, people who, who do write, who take the time to, to, you know, really sort of find, um, poetic ways to express themselves. I, I, I don't, I think that's a, that's a lost art. Um, uh, that uh, on me, I, 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 I used to be like that. And sometimes I do it with my, like, note cards that I like to write to people but even that is still a little pedantic in in the sense that like if if you could you know be more lyrical in your in your prose um or I and I'm talking to myself actually but that there's I think that there's something really important about that Mm -hmm. um that for me feels like a sad lost art well that that book that she wrote that that um, you know, they actually they put together at Lincoln Center of called the Blue Guitar mm. uh, is a is a beautiful example of that. Mm. I mean, I think it's some beautiful, beautiful writing in that yeah. book. So it's in, it's the eighties, yeah. And you're you're doing some gigs you're, for the Lincoln Center Institute, yeah. <laughs> you're gigging. You're going out of town. You're doing regional yeah. work. Meanwhile, regional theaters, somewhere yeah. in there, you're getting married, right? Yeah, yeah. And, All that's um, happening. Maybe children are coming. Yeah, down well, the not, pike. Yeah, down the pike. Down yeah, the yeah, pike. Yeah. Down Mid nineties. Yeah. Um. So what? You know, let's talk a little bit more about your art making, and um, you've been involved with so many different organizations as a as a teaching artist, but. Um, artistically, where where were you going? What were you? Th- what was happening for you in right. the late '80s into the '90s? Yeah, so I had, as I mentioned, I had um, been working on this opera mm-hmm. based on Denmark VC. Takes place in Charleston, South Carolina, mm-hmm. and Denmark VC mm-hmm. is um, it, it was a real person <laughs> who in, in right, lived in in Charleston in um, the late 1700s um, into the early 1800s and who planned um, a slave revolt and in 1822 the plan was discovered prior to its um, implementation Mm -hmm. and he was um, tried and um, and hanged along with many of his Mm co-conspirators and it had a profound impact on Charleston, South Carolina, because um, it created um, the kind of fear that elicits reactions. And the big reaction there was that they formed, that's why there is something mm, called the Citadel. Yes. Uh-huh. The Citadel Military College mm. was formed at that moment. It was like, let's let's arm, you know, let's get guns because we got to protect ourselves. 
Um, because at that point, of course, the state of South Carolina, the, the vast majority, like mm-hmm. 70% of the state was black um, to like 30% white. So they were deeply out, way outnumbered, right, by this point by people of African descent. And so they were scared. And many people draw the line from the Denmark VC revolt to, you know, the, the first shots at um, Fort Sumter in the mm-hmm. Civil War right. because there was, um, because the, the white Southerners were so scared uh, from that, kind of from that moment forward, um, or even more scared than they had been. Um, and so I was really interested in writing a piece about that. And so I spent a lot of time researching it, reading the original trial transcripts. There's a beautiful book that just came out about it called Denmark VC's Garden mm-hmm. by a couple of historians that, I mean, there are many, many books about this, but, but that one that just came out was in response to the shooting at the Emanuel AME Church. Mm-hmm. And that's also a really fascinating book, in my opinion. Um, so I was working on that opera. I got some stage readings of it. I was pitching it to opera companies, um, you know. And basically, I got a couple of I got a couple of stage reading performances, and then that ended. You know, that was as far as the piece went. I could not convince a company to do a full production of it. Mm-hmm. I wrote an um, an orchestral overture, which has been performed a couple times um, by the Charleston Symphony and other you know places mm-hmm. uh, in a way because of the kind of the historical local interest. Um, of it, um, and uh, and some of the and I've had some other performances of the arias, you know, and, and a duet from it. Mm-hmm. But um, but basically, that's what I was working on, and it was a big project because it was an opera, and it was two hours and you know yeah. a half. Basically, it was a big it was a big long old honking opera. Um, so I was working on that, and then you know also doing some theater work, writing a you know a a flute piece here, a string quartet there, you know, people would ask me for things and I would mm-hmm. write them. So it was, you know, I, I was composing along and along um, as I was also doing this opera and, and, and different plays, you know, music for plays. Did you, did you explain, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry if I missed it, but did, did you explain what, why you were interested in, in making an opera about this? Well, there are a couple reasons. Um, the, the, the original reason that I got interested in it was that my mother had written a poem, mm. which was about Denmark VC, in which she mentions Denmark VC, and it was mm. about um, there had been a, a strike of medical workers in 1969 in Charleston. Um, you know, there was, I mean, it, you know, it's the late 60s, and so there was all kind of racial strife, and mm. so there there was a real fear that there was going to be violence. Um, with the medical workers strike and my mother wrote a poem in which she said you know she talked about the kind of the pride of the african-american women who were in the line Mm -hmm. outside the hospital because they were the ones who were you know um, on strike and um, the last line of it was Denmark VC smiles from another century period and in fact, this new book that just came out, they actually quote that poem. Mm. Um, and I, but I read it and I was like, who is that? Because mm-hmm. I didn't know who it was, mm-hmm. you know? And I was really interested in history and American history. And, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. and so I got really interested in finding out why none of the history books talked about mm-hmm. this incredibly important thing. Mm-hmm. Like, why were they censored from my U.S. history? So I would go to my U.S. history, my 11th grade mm-hmm. U.S. history textbook, and I'm like, it's not here. Mm-hmm. No mention. Not in the index, not in the tech, nowhere, right? Um, and it's supposed to be about 
you know, the causes of the Civil War. But, you know, and then, of course, you re then you really begin to read about the objectionable ways that that all of those things are talked about and the way the reasons that are given and, you know, and why it all goes through the state of Texas. I don't understand. But apparently that's the case, you know, that the state of Texas gets to decide what's in every textbook in the United States. I, I don't understand that either. It's completely and they insane. Are, it's horrible. Right. So if you read all the Michelle Alexander, you know, the, it, you know, it's like the new Jim Crow and all that. Like, you're like, mm -hmm. yeah, like yeah. what's going on here. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so I just got really interested in that as kind of like a, a topic, you know, and it became a sort of a be in my bonnet or whatever. And mm -hmm. so when I was at Yale, when I was at school there, they have this amazing um, rare books library called the Beinecke Library, which is made of this, it's an amazing kind of transparent marble. It's a fascinating building, and when you go inside of it, you kind of get, it's like, it's mar the whole thing is marble. The entire thing is marble, mm. and yet light comes through. It's so thin oh. that the light comes through. So it's just an amazing building. And um, when I was there, I decided I would look up, you know, to see what information they had about Denmark BC, and it turned out that they had a copy of the original trial transcripts wow. from 1822. And so I was like, I... I I did that the old thing that you did, which was that you had to order a microfilm yes. copy and then that would get copied out for you. And it cost me a bunch of money. Mm -hmm. It actually cost a bunch of money. But I was like, no, I, I, I'm buying it. I want it. I remember like, I'll forget pizza for a couple of weeks. I want this, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, and so, yeah, I um, that sort of got me going. Mm hmm. But yeah, you know, Charleston is a very troubling place yeah. to be from. I love it. It's beautiful. And yet the denial and the the complex way in which hi history is treated and told and and it's mm. it's it's worse now than it's ever been. Mm -hmm. um, but it really is troubling. And so I wanted to write a piece that would tell this story. That was I mostly was just like somebody should tell this story, you know. Somebody should tell this story. Right. And, and I actually had somebody who was, because, um, you know, my parents were, my dad was in the ACLU. <laughs> so he was, you know, he was a really a lefty uh -huh. in, in, in the South. Um, my, my mother was this very progressive poet, but they very much rubbed elbows with all of the kind of upper echelon, you know, society people in Charleston. And my father, to his dying day, belonged to the Carolina Yacht Club, which still has no Jewish or black members. Are you kidding? I am not kidding. Unbelievable, but true. And I could yeah. never talk him out of resigning from mm -hmm. that, you know, from that club, and um, which is also passed down patrilineally. Oh, okay. can you believe that? I mean, really, truly patrilineally. So they kept telling me, "No, you could join if you want to." You know, I'm like, "Oh my god, oh, are you thanks. just like?" Anyway, let me bring my black Ooh, wife. No, I'm yes. <laughs> no, my, I have a Jew my wife is Jewish. Oh, no, my wife is go. Jewish. So I'm like, you know. And when we went, when we thought wow. for a fleeting moment we might move to Charleston, we went down and there's so much beautiful houses mm -hmm. and properties there and you know, we were riding around with a real estate person showing us mm -hmm. things like that and and then later you know m my my father did say you know well you know you're jewish so you really couldn't be wow. part of right wow yeah yeah just stating it as a fact not as like you know um 
uh, not taking ownership for what that was, but just stating it as a fact, like, well, you're, you know, you're Jewish. So, I mean, so, you know, <laughs> there were lots of reasons not to move back to Charleston yeah, for me, yeah. but um, I wanted to tell that story. And so we were at a party one night when I was just out of school and someone was asking me, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm working on this opera. And this woman who was in her 70s, who was actually, you know, married to one of the most liberal lawyers in town and, you know, who's um, and his brother had been a, actually a very socially conscious liberal judge in the state of South Carolina and done a lot of really important things. But she said to me when I told her that, she said, leave that ghost alone. And she meant it. She like um, practically backed me up into the drapes of this <laughs> place, you know, drinks in hand, of course, because it's Charleston. So we're all getting tanked. Yeah. But she but she was she meant it. She wow. was like, leave that ghost alone. I, I want to pause for just a second yeah. and say, you know, as you've been telling me this, I've been trying to figure out how to ask this question. Um, and I don't think it's the right question. I, I don't know if it's the right question yet, but the fact that there's there are people <laughs> people i i just i want to understand white people <laughs> yeah yeah and, and, and i'm and one guess, i'm a white person yeah so you are and and, and so like let's get podcast, let's go in right? there right yeah, i'm I mean, a white person here here let me help you understand where my thinking is before yeah. i actually ask a question but so i've never heard of denmark vc either and i don't know much about south carolina um or or parts of the south but um every day i want to learn so yeah. um i'm gonna do some some look but you talked about ame church yeah last week there was a um that was denmark vc's church yeah so yeah. so i'm i'm correlating this to um what happened last week at, at the tree of light synagogue mm -hmm. right pittsburgh. and so that's in pittsburgh when i heard that that happened i, I immediately thought about ame church yeah, yeah, and while I, I do not want to compare, but there's this uh, very big conversation happening right now about anti-Semitism mm -hmm. and, and it should be absolutely addressed. But then I thought, you know, uh, with, if you, if you want to broaden it out to gun violence um, and the vitriol that is happening in our country right now um, and uh you know, you can even broaden it out further to oppression in general um, and like voter uh, oppression. Um, and the reason why I'm going there, <laughs> just so you know yeah, what my, yeah. my thinking is, is that, um, you know, black people, African people of African-American or African-Americans, people of African descent in this country have been um, oppressed and discriminated against in, in so many ways. And so when you talked about initially, um, making this opera and you you alluded to the fact that the white people were creating the citadel that they were scared all i could think of was what yeah <laughs> are you kidding like yeah. you've got 30 percent people who are 30 percent who are white in a state 70 percent, but none of those people are free they're or if there slaves. are freemen yeah, yeah, free people there are some but they're definitely yeah. um living a, in the minority in the minority and living in a in a in a liminal space that is also dangerous totally and they're the white people are scared because yeah. you are doing something that is horrible and so you should be scared because right. people are starting to realize that, no, this isn't right. And we're trying to figure out how we can change this. And, you know, here was this plot 
that unfortunately in from my perspective yeah. unfortunately was um thwarted okay yeah so 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 there's That's that right. so i think there's a question in there somewhere i'm not sure yet and then i've been thinking about um what is what is my responsibility as a, a black woman um as a woman who makes art um as a person who has interests but um isn't necessarily about history specifically but like how how and what can i be doing to um create ripples of hope and ripples of light in the midst of the darkness that i think is happening um and i i presume i I don't want to presume what other people think. Right. So I'm tying them all together. It feels a little <laughs> messy that I'm saying all this, but um, I think my question, <laughs> I think the first question I want to ask is, you know, as somebody uh, who, who is interested in making this at a, at, a, at a fairly young age, it seems like, right. And you, you did write this and then people were saying, leave it alone. And it didn't get produced in this in its full form. What did you try to pursue it? Uh, did you just think, okay, let me leave this like alone? And if you did do that, do you have regrets? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, and I think I was young mm-hmm. <laughs> as a writer and as a composer. And I still think there's some really great music in that piece. Mm-hmm. But I also think that there was a, I had a certain, you know, just a, it was my first time out of the gate, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so people deciding not to produce it, I only lay that on myself, mm-hmm. right? That I was young and inexperienced. And if I'd been mm-hmm. a little more together, a little more confident as, as a creator, then maybe I would have artistically would have made a better case mm-hmm. for the piece. Um, at a certain point, I did. It's true, you know. After a few years of of pitching it and you know getting a little ways with it, you know, mm-hmm. the O'Neill Theater Center, the Opera Music Theater Conference, mm-hmm. picked it up. Mm-hmm. I got some money for it and a grant to continue to develop it. You know, I, I mean, I got some support. I did. You know, mm-hmm. um, American Opera Projects did a reading of it in Soho. I mean, mm-hmm. there was there. You know, there, there were pockets. Was, there were pockets. Yeah. yeah. Jo- I took it out to George Shirley, who's a kind of a fabled African American tenor who sang at the Met, and yeah. he really liked it, and he was very supportive. Mm-hmm. There were all kinds of really nice people. Francois Clemens, who you might have, he was um, recently in this uh, movie about Mister Rogers because mm. he played the policeman. Yes. 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 And it, its own fascinating kind of civil rights story that it, that that is integrated into that. Yeah, I mean, Francois he, sang Denmark Vesey. He was on what? the recording that I made oh was Francois. So so Fra- okay. So I want you to keep talking but I I I that was you're answering a different question that I had around okay. that. I was like, did you have who else did you work with on this project that was not white <laughs> and who uh, was engaged? So Francois, what a beautiful story about how uh Fred Rogers asked him to play the policeman and at that time the police there weren't black police right. officers. And yeah. so what a statement that was saying. And he was like, he was um, worried to take that role on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and then the, 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 the feet. Yeah. In, in the, the pool. pool. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful story. Core. Story. story core has 
uh, an interview of him talking about, about that, that moment. Yeah. And, I think and I've heard that as well. That's so good. I think I've heard that as well. Yeah, Francoise, oh terrific. So, so that's amazing. Yeah, so Francoise, Sheila Jackson was a soprano that I worked with. Mm-hmm. But the truth was, in crea- again, in creating it, um, I didn't really reach out to anybody and that was my own inexperience mm-hmm. and my thing mm-hmm. I just was like I've been studying these things I know the trial mm-hmm. transcripts I think I have an idea of how this could go mm-hmm. I kind of I you know fashioned the, the libretto from the trial transcripts uh, myself and then I just began writing music to it right. and and then I did you know engage a bunch of singers and you know other people in in you know uh, working on realizing the piece but I didn't have a librettist who was African American I didn't have a dramaturg or a director. I mean, I never got to the point where I had a director, mm. you know. Um, but um, but yeah, and that I think was a mistake. Yeah, I just I I'm I'm so fascinated by this, and I I do, you know, I think that we're we're. Um, like I want you to do it again. Yeah, well, I, 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 I've, <laughs> I, I never give up on Denmark yeah. DC. In other words, you know, they're different. I, I want to like, see it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, no, I, I, I never give up on it. And that I think, you know, um, it's interesting because the the one person that I have had the great good fortune to work with um, on projects that really do cross the race lines is James Hanaham who's a wonderful African-American novelist here, lives in, in Brooklyn and wrote a book called Delicious Foods mm. and another book called God Says No. Um, he, wonderful novelist. And I, I got to work with him through Target Margin Theater. And, um, and, you know, and I've always thought to myself, if I ever go back to it, you know, I'd love to work with James mm. because we worked on um, we worked on Mamba's Daughters together. We worked on Afram, which is a wonderful piece by another Charleston composer, um, Edmund Thornton Jenkins, and 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 James worked on that as well. And um, and he provides a really interesting um, you know point of view um, that's very contemporary and very smart. And um, and is also, you know, based on the fact that he's an African-American man, a gay African-American mm-hmm. writer. Um, so, you know, someday, maybe. So, yeah, I mean, I, I also am thinking about like who who gets to tell what stories get told, who tells those stories. I'm thinking about Hamilton. I don't know. Why yeah. that, I mean, that, but that there's there's something, you know, reflective of this, this uh, you know, American story and the cast you know, um, it, uh, you know, I, I, I live for my Hamilton actually, but, um, but a- as my experience grows in terms of, um, uh, artistic expression, more specifically in, in the theater realm, um, and I'm not a huge fan of opera, but I like, I, I appreciate what it is and I love that it's a full spectacle and it really encompasses so many different kinds of art forms in one mm-hmm. um i i want to encourage you to do it <laughs> to move <laughs> forward and, like figure i mean of course you know you have to feel it but i encourage you because this this ghost should be able to yeah be risen i agree i agree what's the right word resurrected yes you know because this is the time for it absolutely we are in that time. we're in it we're in it no you know you know the um um the shooter in um, Charleston at mm-hmm. the Emmanuel AME Church, mm-hmm. he knew it. He knew he knew Denmark VC, and he yeah. knew that this was yeah. exactly where he wanted to go because uh-huh. it was the home, as far as he was concerned, mm-hmm. um, of African American um, resistance 
to white supremacy. Mm-hmm. That's where Denmark VC had his church. It was, it was, so, you know, it's one of those things, Southerners, we, we're a lot of things, but we, we know the history that we know. Yeah. We know the history that we're told and there's a lot of it. It gets, we gets lied about. It gets told the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Things get left out, mm-hmm. but people are passionate about it. Mm-hmm. And he was in a very troubling and destructive yeah. and ultimately w- murderous way. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. And I, I just, mean, I feel like, you know, the, the thing that I keep butting up against is, um, if, if there are, there are signals in language and tweets, et cetera, that, um, move people to detrimental and hateful action in the real world. Those words, those tweets, et cetera, have consequences, whether they take response, he takes responsibility for them or not. I don't right. care. So I'm interested in the other side (laughs) of how do we take um, those moments um, that are shocking and, um, you know, could really bring us to sink us to a different place and find a way to shine light regardless. Right. right? Um, uh, I think about uh, in March I was in D.C., excuse me, for um, uh, Arts Advocacy Day. And on the day that we went to Capitol Hill to advocate for the arts, on the lawn were 7,000 pairs of shoes. And the 7,000 pairs of shoes were representative of the 7,000 kids who were killed by guns since Sandy Hook in 2012. And it's 2018. So in six years... 7,000 kids. And, and when you think of them as isolated incidences, you know, it's 25 here, 20, but that demonstration that was quite artistic. It wasn't a pile. It was, they were in rows like graves Hmm. and it's, it was incredibly impactful on, on me and it was simple and it was telling a story without words and um i i want i and and to make a point also obviously and to advocate for um uh gun responsible gun laws but something is broken and i want to i think that arts are the thing or 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 is a part of um what can help fix us um and part of it is going into those very uncomfortable places through art um that will drudge up a whole bunch of stuff because if we don't it's the same thing right where we're telling the history through this filter where we're omitting and we're because it makes us feel better as opposed to actually acknowledging it and saying we shouldn't go back to this we shouldn't have this this isn't something we should do um it makes me think about just to take it go a little bit broader about how um both canada and australia right they have apologized to the indigenous people for the, their treatment and the choices that were made. And now um, I don't, I can't speak to Canada specifically, but in Australia, they acknowledge the land and the, and the um, indigenous or the first nations uh, people, wherever they are before any event, they have a whole day yeah. right, or a whole month or, or something. Or, no, but, my, but, my wife was just in yeah. Montreal and they do it there. They do it there too. Absolutely. Yeah. And, we, and we're trying to think about ways to, 
do that in a way that makes sense for us uh, that you know doesn't feel false but feels authentic so what do we do that's where i'm at what do i do i i don't have answers but i do think that i i i should be doing something and i don't know beyond you know the things that you can do as a citizen but just i mean specifically as an artist well i i I think as you point out one of the things we can try to do is to tell the stories Mm -hmm. that need to be told um and the ones that have been omitted and and also the ones that are that people will you know may be made uncomfortable by but we we've got to tell them anyway Mm -hmm. i mean because these things are they're part of history they're part of the human experience and um and they're true and they need they need airtime and um it seems easy for lies and falsehoods Mm -hmm. to get Mm airtime you know but Mm -hmm. so we we've got to you know in our in our own way structure the time to to make sure that things are, you know, are told that are that are true, and they can be mm. true through fiction, they can be true through documentary, but they, you know, we gotta we gotta try. That's who we are. We're artists. That's what we do, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Were you at the International Teaching Arts Conference? Mm-hmm. I loved like those communal moments. I did the too. The sing circle. Yeah. Yeah, Nick Damaris led those. Yeah, they were great. Oh my god, I I recorded one. I need to like do a snippet. Yeah. Um, I recorded the f- the opening, mm-hmm. not the not the closing. But I just remember feeling. Actually, I I know because you were we were sitting near each other, or maybe you were yeah. in the front. Oh, anyway, I remember seeing you there. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were but there. Yeah, yeah. That that. Um, yeah. The 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 moment we started singing, we became a, a community. It, it, it was um, powerful yeah. and so simple all yeah. at the same time. Um, that's what I'm interested in is, is um, harnessing that. Right. Well, you know, way. it's interesting because if I think about, you know, you, you were, we were talking about this opera and the fact that, you know, I was kind of really doing it kind of all on my own, mm-hmm. you know, in a sort of isolated way, which is true. And that's 40 years ago or 30 years ago, whatever. And now, you know, I'm in, um, one of the things I'm part of is a collective, which is a vocal improvisation ensemble. Ah. Nick Damaris, who led those uh-huh. moments at ITAC for, um, is in that group with us. And there are a bunch of different people, you know, different races, different genders, different, yeah. you know, just a, and we all try to do things together. We try to form things together, to create things together. We actually write music together. We sing together. And, and, and I, when I think now about, well, how would I go about doing a project like Denmark VC or, or, a, or a like project, mm-hmm. you know, today I would go about it in a completely yeah. different way. You know, I, I, in my own way, my inheritance from that time was a, was a kind of, um, you know, like Leonard Bernstein was my, my hero, right? Yeah. So, you know, in a certain way, you were supposed to be able to like, kind of like just do it, mm. you know, just like put it out there mm-hmm. um, uh, as he did with Bernstein's mask. But, you know, um, I, I was using that model and it, it wasn't the right model for what I was trying to do. So I keep thinking like, well, then how would I do it if, you know, I had a different opportunity or a, another yeah. opportunity? So, yeah, it'd be a completely different ball game. 
Thank you for listening to episode 16, act 2 of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body, Thomas Cabanis, Striving for Harmony. Join us next time for act 3. Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the creative content manager. Brandon Hutchinson is the media arts coordinator. Njiri Johnson-Smalls is the communications intern. Jono Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org. Follow us on Twitter at TA underscore artistry. And now on Instagram at Teaching Artistry with CJB. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud, subscribe and rate us on iTunes, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. <laughs>